Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Blockhead. It is uh, our second episode of 2020. And as promised, we have part two of our marathon-length interview with Rick Stramoski, the creator of the wonderfully funny comic strip Soup to Nuts, which, recall, was in the newspapers from 2000 to 2018, a good 18-year run, and is now running on Patreon as Andrew. So be sure to go to Patreon and check out Rick Stramoski there and sign up. Send him a dollar a month and you'll get some wonderful comics every other day. Uh, the story of Andrew continues on Patreon. So we pick up this uh this conversation right where it left off. Uh, Rick and I were talking about some of the frustrations of the uh, education of artists. And one of the things that Rick was emphasizing was the need for young artists, particularly young freelance illustration, comics, cartooning artists, but also all kinds of other artists to have a background in business. And I have to second that. I believe that's absolutely imperative. And I'll tell you why, because I didn't have it. (laughs) I didn't have it. And there were a lot of mistakes made along the way. I still don't have a business sense at all. Which is why I ended up, uh, I think, in part in academia, because I don't have a business sense. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's just terrible. I'm just one of those guys, you know, I fail at all of those things. And, and even when it comes to, like, uh, you know, social media and stuff, I'm just, I'm just, I cannot catch up. I just, terrible. So anyway, so, so that other young artists don't end up like me. The idea that an educational facility for artists would um, would include business is a good idea. Uh, you know, I, I do have to say in our defense uh, that we try. And uh, I work with a lot of great people at Adelphi University where I teach in Garden City, New York. And uh, they're, they're a terrific group of, of educators and artists. They are absolutely wonderful. And much, many of them are much smarter than I am on this issue. And they impart that uh, information to their students as best they can. And, and we do try. So I just want to, you know, uh, not to, I don't want to um, uh, undercut what Rick is saying. I think it's very important. But I also, uh, to just kind of, assuage the fears of of parents out there who might be listening and who may have a budding artist uh, in the household. Uh, Listen, we we do our best to impart as as much as we can to our students, both in terms of technique and and in terms of ideas and in terms of uh, problem solving and and in terms of navigating the art world as much as we can. And I'm saying that... um, out of a sense, uh, not out of a sense of loyalty or uh, a need to defend academia, because I think there are a lot of issues with academia, and the cost uh, certainly is a big one, uh, a, really a big one, and it's something that I'm concerned with, and my colleagues are concerned with at Adelphi. And uh, but having having said that, we also, um, you know, we, we do try to uh, to to guide our students as best we can uh, because we care. And uh, we care about 
the next generation and making sure that they carry uh, forth the torch <laughs> of art, but also that they have healthy and happy lives. That's really the goal, you know, ha healthy and happy lives. And uh, uh, yeah, can't ask for any more than that. And we try our best. And uh, but these are these are good discussions, really good discussions. And Rick and I get into uh, even some more interesting discussions that we don't always necessarily agree on. But it's it's great to hear another point of view and and to talk to somebody about another point of view. For example, you know, the discussion about newspapers and uh, and peanuts on the newspaper page and legacy strips. And I understand Rick's point. You'll hear it in the discussion uh, coming up. And, and I think there's merit to his point. But um, I'd also hate to see a comics page without peanuts on it. So, uh, you know, that's that's a, an ongoing discussion. But I, I do think that as I, we get into, you know, this is something we've talked about a lot, and uh, you'll hear what I have to say later on, but I think it's time for, you know, uh, in order to maintain the health of the medium in that venue, uh, some kind of reimagining has to take place, and uh, what that means, I'm not exactly sure, because I'm not, well, you know, I'm not one of those people in a position to determine that. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, uh, so this is a great discussion. There's, it covers a lot of territory, a lot of territory. And, and, and it, you know, we talk about newspapers and we talk about comics. We talk about Charles Schultz and Peanuts and we talk about religion and Catholicism because we both come from that. And I think it, it, it's just you're going to find it. I hope you'll find it. Uh, as interesting as it was to both Rick and I. So uh, without further ado then, let's get to it. Rick Stramoski and myself in conversation. I've had hundreds, hundreds of art directors uh, since 1983 that have used me. Not one of them has ever asked me where I went to school or what my grade was. You know, well, how were my grades? Where'd you go to school? Not one ever asked me that question. It's the portfolio. <laughs> what kind of work you do, what kind of discipline you have, exactly. uh, how reliable you are. Yep. Uh, how you know how above board your business practices are, and I think that yeah, and I, I I always stress, and I speak to kids all the time, and I I tell them how important it is uh, to meet deadlines. Um, one of the things I tell them is, you know, I tell the story about buying mailing lists and spending all this money to you know, have to spend money to make money, but if you you have to always always make your deadlines, and I tell kids, you know, your teachers aren't doing this, you know, just to make it easier for them. It makes it easier for you in your future because Imagine spending all this time promoting yourself to these different markets, and one finally decides to hire you after six times, you know, getting a postcard from you, and you're late on your deadline. You've thrown that, you've thrown that whole, you know, production schedule off, because they don't care if your your dog ate it or if you got shot in the leg. I mean, you think the work has to be there when it has to be there, and do you think you're, that art director will ever hire you again? And they won't. They will never, ever hire you again. So this is, this is what I tell kids when when we're doing assignments, whether it's for an illustration class or it's for something else. The assignment has to be in on time. If you were if you were doing this for uh, you know business, they, there's no OG. Oh, you know, I overslept or I've got a lot of other homework to do. I mean, that's not. A, it just doesn't matter. And the other thing that that I think is really important for them to understand too is particularly when they start a lot of kids will put stuff out and go well it would be better except that uh i blah 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 whatever excuse it'd yeah. be better than this or i'm not really happy with that and that just doesn't cut it because an audience or whether it's an audience that is a professional audience like a, a publisher or it is your your audience out in instagram does not care why it's not as good as it should be 
that right. does not mitigate anything. If it's not as good as it should be, they pass by it and go on to the next thing and and uh, and forget about you and and I, you know that's that's something that has to be ingrained and you you can't really forget it's a it's a professional attitude you know the, these are big issues you're going to have to you, be careful because you know i i just might reach out to you to come and and lecture for one of my classes at oh, one i'd point. love to that's fun yeah because i think this is a really interesting and important topic business practices professional practices for commercial art as well as for fine art are really important because i agree with you you know the more students who are aiming towards the fine art world learn how to navigate the commercial world and to to augment what they're doing with commercial work the more the more artists we're going to see, the more successful artists we're going to see. And I think it's really important to to grapple with this stuff. But I want to also go back because I, I, I think it is really impressive that you are a self-taught artist. You're an artist who did not go to art school and you found your way. And obviously, you know, you were really smart and really motivated and really driven in ways that a lot of people, you know, I think like I know for myself, I would send stuff out and not get responses just as you're saying. it. I would just like fold up like a leaf, you know, uh, in the fall and crumble because I feel like I was stepped on. I was no good. And that was that. And, and, you know, take those rejections to heart. And then I couldn't do anything after that because my self-esteem or, or my drive or my imagination, you know, and my, and that's really comes down to my imagination wasn't strong enough to survive or to make myself successful in that field. And so I, I really admire how you've begun your career and how you built your career, but I also admire your skill as a cartoonist. And I think one of the things that I'd really like to, to examine a little bit is your drawing style, your cartooning, what, what your influences are, how you put that together and, and where that came from. Because I find you draw, as Charles Schultz said, you draw really funny and beautifully designed characters that are just hilarious. And you, you don't even have to read the strip to know it's funny. Where did all of that come from? Drawing characters that are really hilarious to look at and really entertaining. There's a lot of influences in there that you've put together to create something that's entirely your own. Yeah, I, I, Mad was was instrumental. I mean, I mean, I liked the comics pages uh, growing up. Um, I particularly like uh, Bill Holman, who did uh, Smokey Stover. Uh, just yeah, yeah. The sheer wackiness of it. It's just there was so much going on visually in in his strip. I didn't actually get it sometimes it just it was it was kind of uh, abstract like uh, zippy the pinhead is you know bill is <laughs> very abstract but bill what bill does is just to me phenomenal what he what he can put in a comic strip and have it be legible at that size is just yeah. how much work he puts into those why he's not won a Rubin award to me is just astounding to me but uh he's just he's an artist's artist and um but my influences really primarily came from Mad. I, I loved, not only did I love, you know, the drawing in Mad and the fact that there were, you know, 15, you know, different cartoonists pretty much in there. Uh, I mean, and they were all different. They were all, they all drew differently. I loved how Jack Davis drew sports figures. Oh. I, I wanted to be a sports illustrator when I was younger and I just loved, I learned how to draw, you know, sports uh, football players and baseball players, you know, through Jack and the, and the movement. And like, he could actually draw, you know, the way he drew shoes, I mean, nobody draws <laughs> shoes like Jack Davis. You know, his shoes have muscles on them, right? They were just, yeah. just a really interesting way. Of, and his cross hatching was great. And and Mort Drucker's caricature work was astounding to me. And and I loved Sergio's 
Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And margins and and when Sergio got, um, you know, sometimes Sergio would get a three-page spread of something with a theme, and I loved that because then now you could see how he draws bigger, you know, as opposed to getting a magnifying glass and seeing how he, you know, drew these tiny little margin things. And when I was a kid, I thought he drew that tiny. I said, boy, that's really great. He could draw this detail <laughs> so small. But in, in Don Martin's hands and feet, like Don Martin's characters would would be walking towards you and his foot would be folded in half and it looks perfectly normal. You know, that kind of, <laughs> I just I just loved the artists in there and how they drew and how they thought and how they 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 just their characters came alive and the movement. And so that was my influence. So I would practice, you know, I would copy their stuff. I would trace their stuff. And I and I just incorporated all those things, you know into you know my own style and i, and I kind of draw in several different styles i mean I, I depending on my mood or you know what i want to paint or draw is is you know will will dictate it but i i just kind of just paid attention to all those little details and i think we all do that as cartoonists we we pay attention to those details and we we say oh that's how you draw this so that's how you draw that and um and i just uh i just put it together and that's that's kind of how it all came about I think what you've got in, in your work is, is completely your own. So it's evolved and, and taken all these things and put them together and they've come out with your own sensibility shaping them. But I can also see when you talk about Mad Magazine, I can see Sergio in your work and I can see Don Martin in particular. Those two guys, I, I can see that kind of quality, your line quality and also the exaggerations of form. While you don't draw you know, Don Martin had a particular way of dealing with the the human form and the human figure that's very Don Martin and very recognizable. And you don't mimic that at all. But I can see that sense of love of exaggeration yeah. that's in Martin uh, and sound effects and whatnot in in Soup to Nuts. Uh, it, it's it's and in in terms of also in terms of the paintings that you're doing now, they're they uh, I love them and they also remind me of. Um, of Don Martin too, in that, in the best way possible, you know, they're still yours, but yeah, you can see this guy loved, you know, loved Don Martin and loved Sergio Aragonis. That's they're there. And, and to be able to meet them, you know, I never met Don, oh. Martin, but to meet Sergio and these guys were my heroes. And, um, yeah. and now that I've been in the NCS for such a long time, I mean, the fact that they know who I am and they, you know, we, we can sit down and have a conversation. It's just, you know, you have these heroes of, you know, of, of your childhood and then they become your friends. It's just like an amazing gift. And, um, but I, I loved mad particularly too, but not just, you know, the art was always fantastic and primary for me, but I loved the irreverence of it. I loved how mad made, there were no sacred cows that were, yeah. they made fun of Harry. They made fun of the Pope. They made fun of you know, politics and popular culture and television shows. And, you know, you, they, you'd see a, you know, you, you watch a show that's so wholesome and wonderful, like the Waltons and there it is in mad being, you know, completely skewered. And it just, I just love that idea. Or, or the fact that you can even draw the Pope, you know, growing up Catholic <laughs> yeah, mortal sin, you know, but here you got the Pope, you know, riding a donkey or something. It just, or even Jesus, you know, and just the stuff that they would do is just, I mean, in fact, growing up in my house, you know, Mad Magazine was something that did, you get your ass beat if you were reading Mad, you know, just you have to hide it like a Playboy, you know, it would be. Yeah. You know, so I just loved it. <clears throat> but um, 
I teach a history of comics class, and one of the things that I, I think that I try to impress on kids when we get to talking about the 50s is how groundbreaking Mad Magazine was in terms of satire, in terms of its sense of humor, and in terms of, the, you know, the idea that all of a sudden there were no sacred cows, that yeah. you could make fun of everything and and not take everything seriously. That That was not, I mean, you know, a big part of popular culture. Uh, prior to that, our institutions were held in high regard and rarely parodied, at least in popular media. Mad Magazine, Harvey Kurtzman, Wally Wood, Bill Elder, all those guys, Al Feldstein, all of them, you know, broke open doors. I don't know if you heard the show I did with Ryan Flanders from Mad Magazine, but when Mad was first announced that Mad was ending its its run of original material, we had a, a big show with Ryan and talked a lot about Mad, the history of it and whatnot. And it's impact through my childhood, and and you and I are roughly the same age. We, yeah. you know, both in the close to sixty range. You're just over it, I guess. But happy birthday, by the way. Oh. Um, <laughs> but for us growing up, Mad Magazine was a kind of crucible. You know, uh, you went through as a kid and, uh, and it was something that was shared among friends in secret. And, uh, it was an important point of transition, I think for a lot of folks. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as well as, uh, National Lampoon, uh, Oh my God. Yeah. National Lampoon, Gay and Wilson and, and the cartoonist and Playboy. I mean, um, I, my brothers were older than me. So, you know, occasionally, you know, come across a Playboy between a mattress or in the basement or, Oh yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, I'd read the articles first and then, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I was always drawn to all the comic we all did. Yeah. The comic art was just amazing. The humor in it, the, the, I mean, the drawings of, uh, like, uh, Kurtzman's, uh, little Annie Fanny. It was, it was, it was sexy, but it was beautifully drawn. I remember just re- reading those comics and thinking, not just looking at how, you know, erotic it was but but the fact that it was so well drawn this is a comic that's just you know uh, just amazing to me and and the the big you know full page comics and the and then the half you know the quarter page black and whites and uh just you know jack the bill i think it was bill dempsey or i forget his name but he had the old woman uh, or buck brown buck brown's uh old woman cartoons and you know and and, uh, whitney darrow's watercolor and the you know the broad brush strokes and the it was just every there was just it was like mad there was so many different ways of of cartooning in those things and uh well, they, was a cartoonist yeah. himself yes, and, he was. and had a great deal of appreciation for comics he knew what he liked and comics were something that he really liked and his page rate was one of the best going if i yes they were yeah yeah, yeah. and so he he supported a lot of folks, a lot of cartoonists, as did magazines in general. And and that's one of the kind of the sad things as the magazine and print industry has kind of died is is that marketplace uh, for cartoonists and great cartoonists. You know, it's shrunk and uh, not entirely gone, but but it's shrunk a great deal. I mean, Playboy stopped carrying cartoons a number of years ago, I think now, which was a sad moment, I think, uh, just one of the big markets. Yeah, and it's it's really to see cartoonists like um, Gan Wilson, you know, yeah. recently passed away. Um, yeah. in, in the manner that he, you know, the lack of work that he's had, you know, in years, recent years, uh, it's just a shame because he's a giant. You know, he will always. Sure. Uh, the fact that you know modern publishing can't appreciate you know someone like Gan Wilson uh, and give him work is to me kind of scary. You know that you see, you know, cartoonists that. Um, used to be everywhere, you know, are not 
there anymore. You know, they're just not uh, getting the work that they they really deserve to have. But um, that's a whole nother whole nother discussion. Well, it, it is but actually maybe it's a topic for a show, particularly with the generation of cartoonists, wherein cartoonists did not own their own material, as you're talking about King Features or with other syndicates, signing away copyrights, things of that nature. There's a whole generation of cartoonists who who had no retirement plan, who were working check to check yeah. with no no kind of security whatsoever, no health care, no nothing. These are people we revere, you know? Right. Yeah. And we and we have great, you know, memories of and stories of and people who have actually helped and mentored people. You know, that one of the things that I've discovered, you know, uh, when I become a, a professional cartoonist, how willing other cartoonists are to help other cartoonists and yeah. uh, like send them, you know, markets to, to target or get them work or uh, share, you know, information with them. It was it's yeah. it's weird because, you know, we're all in competition with one another, but we we help each other, you know, it, yeah. it's against, you know, working against our own best interests. But, uh, I've never met a cartoonist that, um, that, that was just a negative. I just, I, I've just always found them as friendly because we're helpful people because we're very excited about what we do. I mean, we're really passionate about what we do and how yeah. amazing it is that we get paid to, you know, put our little doodles on pieces of paper and make a living from it. And anybody who can do that, I have nothing but respect for whether i like their feature or not uh it's like going back to the you know the art director you know thousand thousand art directors you're never going to please everyone and and, but if you're making a living at it and you're doing it and that to me is is astounding to me i have nothing but respect for that and oh same here yeah same here i think it's so hard to make a living in the arts in general when i first had my first failures and struggles you know um all of the kind of youthful arrogance that i had fell away and i just became very inspired and and in awe of uh, artists who who particularly artists like yourself for example who found their own way and built their own career one step at a time on their own two legs i mean it's really a difficult world to navigate and uh and certainly anybody who's done it gets my respect that's for sure um because i think it's a difficult thing to do but anybody who wants to do it too i've talked to several different cartoonists who've been very helpful such as yourself you know ray billingsley goes out of his way to help uh yeah younger cartoonists and um uh, of course charles schultz did too and uh we're passing a baton in in my own way i do it as a teacher and, uh, and I think it's really important to think not in terms of just myself as a teacher but uh, and as an artist, but that art is something that lives on beyond each. It's, it's bigger than just an individual artist. It's about a continuum and, uh, and handing that baton off to somebody else. That's really important because that's what it's about, you know. Another cartoonist that, that was amazing in that regard was Mort Walker. He, he helped. Yeah dozens of cartoonists find work he got them working because he had a lot of pull you know he yeah. he, he uh, through king features and some of his uh, publishing uh connections he would he would find out about a cartoonist who needed a job and he would find them a job for them and he was just really magnanimous in that way and never you know asked for anything in return he was he was like your long lost uncle and you know people people denigrate beetle bailey and you know some of the stuff that he's done but you know <clears throat> the, the, the guy's the, the strip's you know older than me, you know. Yeah, and, I know. You know. It's got legs. It's got you know reasons to do it. And uh, 
and it's still still in the marketplace. I give nothing but respect for it. And, and the work is new. I mean, even it's now a legacy strip. You know, the sons are doing it. Uh, they're still putting out quality work. They're still, you know, consistent with it. Uh, and as long as the marketplace says we want you there, I, my only my only thing that I have a problem with, and this <clears throat> might rub you the wrong way, but but strips that no longer are putting out new material that are taking up real estate on yeah. the page. I think that's what's killing the comics. There's here in Hartford, there's you know there's four comics that are just they're they're being done by artists that don't create any new work. I mean. Yeah. Uh, you know, peanuts. If you if you want to read peanuts, there's there's thousands of anthologies you can read. I mean, no, I mean, it would used to bother me when I opened the paper and I'd see a peanut strip, and it mentions Peggy Fleming. I yeah. Mean, yeah. Who yeah. knows who Peggy Fleming is? That's under yeah. 50 years old. I mean, yeah. there was in the fact they even had a Sam Sneed reference. You know, a golfing cartoon. Sam Sneed, <laughs> you know, was the 1940s, 1950s. <laughs> I mean, yeah. uh, it would be like watching, you know network tv turning it on on a thursday night at eight o'clock and you're watching the dick van dyke show from 1960s it's it's great to watch dick van dyke if you're you and me you know that's that's one thing but uh, oh maybe it's okay for younger people too but but i i take what you're saying i don't take offense at it at all because i think it's a it's a topic well worth discussing you I know I, a financial aspect that it's a cash cow it makes you know millions of dollars for the syndicate and peanuts it'd be stupid to give that up i, I understand that but from the artistic point of view, from the what is good for comics, what is good for newspaper comics, it's 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 awful. Um, well, I, and I think the issue, too, comes down to also newspaper comics in general. You know, we we're just talking about the syndicates and their business practices and all of that and how it all works. And, you know, there there are some. There's some difficulties there, and there's some difficulties in the publishing industry. I, I think that it's it's ripe for reinvention. Right. At this point, and I know that I listened to Comics Lab with Brad Geiger and Dave Kellett. And I've talked about them a lot on this show, and they've made a living as web comics artists, and they've been very successful in a lot. And I know a number of people have followed in their footsteps and and do it. And they point a certain kind of business model. I don't know that it works for everybody. It certainly, you know, doesn't always. And and I think there've got to be other ways of utilizing mass market media, uh, not just social media and individuals working on social media, but mass market media somehow, the way the comics page functioned in the newspaper. I think there's got to, it's, it's ripe for, a, a, if the comic strip as we're talking about it is going to con continue to be a viable, vital part of daily life. How it's got to its dissemination one way or another, I think, has to be reinvented. It's in a process of being reinvented. But I think I think it's well worth, you know, a lot of people saying, well, let, you know, this isn't working anymore. Let's let, we've got to find another another viable mode of communicating this material, of disseminating this material right. and right. talking about legacy strips is an important part of it. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, just uh. I don't know what the answer is, but um, yeah, we're, it, 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 I've, I've had the same discussion since you know the since the '90s. You know, this is yeah. since you know I started you know as a professional cartoonist. So it's yeah. it's no easy answers, but uh, it is a problem for sure. You know, and some of the folks who might listen to the show might might immediately be offended by the idea of say removing peanuts from the. The, and all legacy strips. I mean, if you're going to remove peanuts, you know, you, you're going to remove those other comics that are not new material and other things as well. I think peanuts would probably be the last one to go. But 
I think it would show that the comics page yeah, is not the first one. Um, it should be. There's been no new material for 20, 20 years. Yeah, so. yeah, I know, I know. You know and and, and most one of the things, most of what you see is from the sixties, or actually from the late sixties to the early seventies or early eighties. You know, it's just it's you're looking at strips that are you know 50 30 years old yeah. uh, at least beetle daily it's all new material that you're seeing every day um and i understand lynn johnston you know wanting to you know but everything you're seeing for better for worse is is rehashed get fuzzy is the dailies of get fuzzy are are rehashed yeah yeah uh, and you were gonna uh, i i know you too were were gonna run reprints of soup to nuts but then you didn't or you stopped after uh, a little while um I, or did i didn't do any uh, you didn't do it it was just something that was just thrown out there as an idea yeah no i just i just never did um i don't well, think even time to do it but i just uh i don't know i just i i think that that i cannot like i said earlier it, it's it's for as a as a monetary it, it's almost like the energy companies you know you're not going to give up oil and go right into you know solar because you're still mm -hmm. making money off this oil, but it's do, it's damaging the environment. It's damaging, you know, what what we're doing. And and I think that running comics and that are that are that you can easily get in anthologies, it does damage to the to the new readers that you're trying to bring in. I mean, you're not going to bring in well, new readers to read, you know, yeah. rehashed, you know, comics. Right. right. I think this is a viable topic for discussion. And, and I think absolutely it's, it's, you know, I think reinvention is the name of the game in terms of the comics page, but also in terms of newspapers in general. Uh, I, for years, I say this all the time. Um, I did a lot of collage work with the original New York times material, you know, the, the daily New York times newspaper that I bought. And, and it was part of what I was doing. I used just the times to make a lot of different stuff. And uh, I don't even get the you know, I get the Dale, the New York Times on my computer now. You know, I I, I yeah. don't bother. Of course, I live in upstate and it's harder, but that's not the point. The point is simply it's too convenient, you know, to get it digitally. And yeah. so I think when you're talking about re who's reading the newspaper, who's actually reading, you know, my local newspaper is moribund. I mean, it's just God awful. It's two dollars an issue. And it's all either advertisements or no local news whatsoever. And, and, uh, and it's a chain. It's part of a larger chain. And it's, it's just, you know, I hate to say it, it's $2 wasted if you were going to buy it. I think so are, are, are making their mistakes is they're, they're focusing on the wrong things. I agree. They yeah. think <clears throat> local news is where people, why people would buy news. We, uh, in the town I live in, Suffield, we have this local paper. It comes out once a month. It's a broadsheet about mm -hmm. 50 pages but it's all about suffield it's everything about suffield it's mailed free to everyone uh everyone's house comes the first of the month every every month uh, i do an editorial cartoon for it um but it is the most popular thing in town and yeah. people want to read about what's going on in our town they want to see things they can't get on the internet or right on you know the broadcast news Newspapers, by the time you get it in the morning, by the, by the time the Hartford Current lands in my driveway, all that news that's been printed, I've already seen it last night on the news, or I saw it yesterday afternoon on the Internet. So yep. why do I want to read it again? So what, what, what can newspapers do to make them viable? Well, you, you, you have to give them features. Features are yeah. what's in the papers. Comics sells the papers. Writers, certain writers will sell a newspaper. And a local news. People want to write about, want to read about what's happening 
here in Hartford. They want to find out what's going on in Hartford. They got rid of the town section. They limited yeah. the, the number one thing that people would buy the paper for uh, is is gone. And they've they do have a very viable comics page. I have to give them credit. There's like 40 comics in the Hartford Current. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but uh, it, 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 it's a it's a mindset throughout the industry, and they're they're doing it completely backwards. I agree with you about the, the, this idea of a monthly or a weekly that deals more with local news that has local journalists and local reporters. We had a thriving, and I, you know, longtime listeners will have heard this discussed before, but we had a history of journalism here in, in my upstate New York home. Uh, two newspapers, there were probably more than that for my time, but yeah. With local journalists, well-known journalists, revered, actually, people who, who wrote columns for 50 years, you know, and there's none of that now. There was a guy named David Rossi. He was, he was a local journalist. Uh, he, he wrote a column. He was a reporter, went through the reporter thing, and he was a local journalist for 50 years, and he was revered. Great guy. Uh, nobody ever filled his shoes. Nobody came. There was nobody groomed to fill his shoes. And we just don't have the, the investment in, in local journalism now. And, and, and we've lost a lot in that, that way. And I think that's one way in which local newspapers can reinvent themselves. You know, people need to know about what's going on at their school board meeting or at their town. Or, or yeah, I mean, this, are, this paper says really well in Suffield and yeah. it relies solely on advertising dollars and it's a completely viable paper. It pays all its bills, actually runs a profit. So, um, that's great. All the staff is volunteer, but it's a uh, it's 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 a viable paper. I mean, it, it's yeah. it's it, it's a good model for it to show you know conventional papers you know what works, and they're not yeah. doing it, so. So let's get back to, to you a little bit, because I think, you know, I, I, I still want to get back to, to your work and where you're coming from. Bill Holman, Smokey Stover, we used to get that. It's another example of a great old strip that not too many people talk about. But I love this. I never saw dailies. Um, I always saw the Sunday, though. And uh, I, I love it. That's one of those strips I loved as a kid was Smokey Stover because it was so whacked out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, no, it's, I love Smokey Stover. I mean, I liked Peanuts. um to some extent, um, but I like peanuts in print in uh, book form more than I liked it in newspaper form because in the paper it was just so minimal and uh, newsprint isn't a very good reproduction of what you're seeing. Um, mm -hmm. When I the first time I saw peanuts outside of the paper, it was in a book called um, The Gospel According to Peanuts. Oh, I, I had that book too. Yeah, my mother was a the theologian and uh, she was totally into religion and. Uh, this book, I remember looking at it and seeing, you know, as you know, there's uh, peanut strips you know, sporadically placed throughout the book um, yeah. when talking about different aspects of religion. And um, but the printing on it was so crisp and the blacks were so black. And I really and you really see the cross hatching that Sparky did. And um, it was the first time I really was drawn to the art of peanuts was seeing and it was slightly larger than you'd see in the paper. So um, that was my first real, and the strips in, in that book were some of his absolute best. I mean, they were absolutely hysterical, uh, where most of the dailies I thought were kind of trite and, and cute, but not really, um, not really, it didn't really draw me in like, you know, other comics did. <clears throat> but um, 
Which, yeah. uh, by the way, you know, I thought it would be it's kind of interesting because I got the sense when I when I looked at some of the stuff about you online that you mentioned all these other influences and, and Peanuts was not mentioned. And I thought, well, this is going to be interesting because it'd be kind of cool to talk to somebody who's not really intuitively drawn to that kind of sensibility. It, I mean, and so I kind of wanted to hear from you some of your critique of, of Peanuts because I think it's kind of interesting to hear from somebody who is maybe not as enamored of it as, say, I am. You know, for example, well, um, I, think it, I think it was a phenomenal strip. I mean, the things that Sparky did uh, were un, unheard. Like he had these uh, just these flagship moments, you know, in the strip, you know, creating these, you know, the Red Baron, the, the great pump, yeah. the, uh, Schroeder's piano, uh, the pulling the football away. These are things that were just I mean, to have so many of those hooks was yeah. amazing. And and a lot of those particular elements those are the things that i always resonated me with peanuts was was those things that would you know the fantasy life of of snoopy and um and i loved the uh i love the animations but i didn't like the animations i thought there was some sloppiness in in the great pumpkin charlie brown and the christmas you know special with charlie brown some odd things happened you know in the animation you probably know what i'm talking about but um I just, uh, but that, that was the, that was, those were the times, but to me, it didn't grab me, you know, like, I mean, there was a comic strip called Ricochet and it was a cowboy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ricochet. Sure. Yeah. And it was, uh, mostly the Sundays. I loved the Sundays because they were bigger and, and but the drawings in there were just amazing. I was just love, I think I was more drawn to the art in the comics than I was, the writing, you know, I just we used to read the comics for how they were drawn, um, but I didn't. Peanuts didn't seem right to me. It just they didn't sound like kids to me. They sounded like little adults. And, <laughs> Which is one of the things a lot of people love about it. Yes, I know I, exactly. But to me, it, as a child reading this, I said nobody talks like this. <laughs> and Charlie Brown was a big fat whiner. I mean, I just he just annoyed me. He just he was just a. Um, I I, I love the baseball strips. I love the the action when when there was action and there was always action in the baseball strips and, and I loved that. And but a lot of it was just a lot of talking heads. And, and I think one of the things I didn't like about Peanuts and it was probably one of the successful marketing uh, the marketing uh, plan for for Peanuts or strategies was that it it shrunk the comics. It made yes. the comics smaller. It he. That was that was his selling hook was the fact that it was four panels. Uh, they could be linear. They could be two over two. They could be, you know, horizontal and vertical. Um, so it was very versatile that where it could be placed on the comics page and and not lose any of the content. But it was very minimal. I mean, there's no backgrounds, you know, very little um, detail. Uh, perspective never changed. Uh, it was dull to look at to me. I just never. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not trying well, you know, to, you know, Sparky, granted, he's probably, you know, the greatest cartoonist in, in the 20th century. Um, but to me, as a kid reading it, it just it didn't grab me like, you know, other strips did. 
Well, I think it's it's this is so fascinating, particularly if you're coming from an art background as as I am and you are. You know, you always gravitate towards the art. And you're looking for stuff, and particularly when you're young, you're looking yeah. for stuff that challenges you as an artist. You know, you want to draw better, so you look at at Hal Foster and you you know things like that. And and Sparky was you know Sparky. I can't call him Sparky. I didn't know him. But Charles Schultz went in the other direction. But that was if you go through the strip, that idea, which I think was a huge part of how it was originally sold was sort of imposed upon him, you know, by the, first of all, by the syndicate and the newspapers in general who were moving towards smaller, smaller real estate for comics all the way around, you know, editors have always had that love hate relationship. So they were moving in that direction and, and Sparky's, uh, I gotta stop calling him. He's Mr. Schultz to me. Um, he, he, I know. I just feel, I never knew him and I just don't feel like I can do that. It's anyway. But so aside from that, his, his style lent itself to that as well. Uh, I don't think he would have, been able to accommodate that if his style didn't already, you know, suit itself to that and suggest it. And, and yeah, so and to that point, you could see some of his early uh, Sunday pages where he would do a lot of de- detail in the backgrounds and it just didn't seem right. It didn't fit right. It didn't look right. You know, when he had all this, you know, detail, cause he could draw, he could draw. Sure. And, um, but when you look at those early Sunday peanut Sundays, they didn't quite, yeah look right and he did do perspective and things like that in those early yeah. days. and it was just not feeling the same way as it did now so you know i'm not i'm not trying to denigrate his style at all or you know when i say it didn't resonate with me but it did not resonate with me as a kid you know as, yeah. as a young child looking at peanuts and seeing i mean to me uh, reg smith and and uh uh handicap was much more interesting um one because he was you know, this alcoholic, you know, wife beating drunk. And, uh, but the fact that, you know, that just, I love the art style. I love the way Reg drew and I liked his humor. And, um, you know, to me, that was, that was really interesting, but, uh, I just never, the peanuts just didn't jump at me the way. And I know a lot of cartoonists say that the first thing out of their mouths is, you know, who was your influence? They always say peanuts. And, you know, I, you know, I try not to, it's, I try not to be sacrilegious. <laughs> You're a Catholic after all. Um, I'm an atheist, you know, and I'm an atheist, <laughs> you know, peanuts, you know, influencing me. And I know it influenced a lot of people done not to you know, denigrate its importance. Um, well, I think it's it's the, some of the stuff that you're talking about, you know, Mad Magazine, uh, the irreverence of Mad Magazine, um, right. the satirical qualities within uh, the cartoonists that you mentioned, the the screwball comedy of Bill Holman. You know, that's coming from a very different sensibility than Charles Schultz uh, is coming from. Exactly. Yeah, I was more I'm more of a I always were drawn to people who were wise, wise asses. You know, I just mm-hmm. like I, I loved Groucho Marx as a kid. I love watching yeah. Groucho, Marx Brothers movies and. Uh, we were forbidden to watch the Three Stooges. Um, <laughs> so uh, you 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 died to. Yeah, my mother would say you cannot watch these; they're too violent. But actually, that's where Soup to Nuts comes from. Uh, the very first Three Stooges movie was called Soup to Nuts, and it was written. Oh my God, I didn't realize that. Yeah, it was written and produced by uh, um, Rube Goldberg. It was actually uh, oh. Rube Goldberg was in the movie. He wrote the movie, and it was there's a lot of Rube Goldberg uh, contraptions throughout the movie. Okay, I'm picking my mouth up off the floor right now. That that, but I had no idea of that. Yeah, try, a, you could actually see it on YouTube. I think you could see the whole movie on YouTube. It's it's with uh, Ed Healy and uh, it had uh, Larry 
Fine, it had Mo and it had Shemp, who was pre way pre Curly. Um, mm-hmm. Very bizarre movie, but really fun to watch. And um, and that was the name of the, the movie. It was called Soup the Nuts. So that's uh, oh, kind of God. that's why I picked the name. You know, it was just a tribute to a television show or or movies that we were forbidden to watch as children. So you're pointing to all these influences, you know, that are a, a totally different world really than the kind of humor the character driven humor the less wise ass oriented humor the kind of uh, you know psychologically based humor that that is in schultz's work is is coming from a, a very different place it's like warner brothers cartoons uh, the difference between the directors the that some people love chuck jones's cartoons some some people love bob mckimson's cartoons it 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 all depends on the sensibility. There's a, a refined kind of elegance in Chuck Jones's work, and, and that madcap quality that's in some of the other directors' work is something that other people prefer, you know. And I think it's just a difference in in uh, in taste. And if everybody was the same, then what a drag it would be. Well, it's the same with uh, animation. When you mentioned animation, um, I never liked Disney movies. I just found them boring and 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 insipid i loved max fleischer i thought max fleischer was a much better animator his stories were better they were edgy i mean those early popeyes and those superman cartoons and gulliver's travels they were just absolutely beautifully drawn and and done and to me you know pinocchio and dumbo and bambi they were just i don't know milk toasty i don't know they just seemed too clean to me they were just too everything wrapped up in a big tight bow at the end and um, I just, You're speaking to my heart now, man, because yeah. uh, I, I really, I, the same thing, you know, Disney movies are beautiful to look at. I mean, in terms of their finish and their polish and their technological achievements are really, you know, inspirational and, and awesome. You know, no, the first great flush of Disney uh, feature length films just knock me out. You know, they're, they're great. But when it comes to cartoons that I want to watch uh, yeah. over and over and over again, Fleischer Brothers. Number one on the list, you know. Yeah, I think why they resonated with me is because they're kind of like why Bill Holman resonated. There was all these wacky stuff happening in the backgrounds, and and you know, Popeye talking under his breath, the things he would say under <laughs> not really part of the dialogue, but it was just like the the aside stuff would kill me. And and the fact that you know he could punch a pile of wood, it would go up in the air, and a cabin, you know, was built right there, you know, right, fall down, turn into a cabin. I mean, things things that that didn't happen in Disney movies. Things that could not happen didn't happen in Disney movies where, to me, why limit yourself? I mean, this is a cartoon. Anything can happen. I mean, uh, it just, and and I think the attention to detail in those Supermans just blew me away as a kid. I remember watching how dramatic the lighting was, for one thing, in the the Fleischer's Supermans. Uh, But the detail, there there was a scene where there was a point of view um, where Clark is talking to Lois and Clark's sitting at a desk and you're looking uh, a bird's eye view from behind Clark and the light's coming a certain way and there's a shadow to the left and Clark's head's moving and you know when your collar's too tight and your skin kind of folds up a little bit you know when you're call- you, you lean your head back well they did he drew that he drew this little mm-hmm. fold Clark's neck and and it was shadowed and it was just a tiny little details like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Just, just to me, I never really felt it in Disney. And like Lois, there was this one with the mechanical monsters. I don't know if you remember that particular one. Oh but yeah. 
which she they're looking at the diamonds and everything and clark calls out lois and you're seeing her the scene is the back of her head and then she turns around really quickly it's the first time you see lois in the strip or in the in the in this film and her hair moves and it it moves and it keeps moving even though her face has stopped it goes side to side and then settles itself and the light changed with it as it moved through the light the light with the shadows would change on her hair and that detail was just amazing to me as a kid i see i don't know i just saw these things and it it just impressed me. It was like, boy, this is like real life. This is so really well drawn and thought about. And that's why yeah. I like Fleischer better than, than Disney. Yeah, I also like the the urban kind of sensibility that exists in Fleischer. You know, it's a mix of cultures. We're talking about guys, animators, cartoonists who grew up in the city, who grew up on the Lower East Side, who come from an immigrant experience. So they bring all of these different, this kind of humor, the rough and tumble humor that comes out of mixing all of these people from all of these different places in the world together. And it, it's got a punch to it. Disney is very, the humor in the uh, shorts from the, the 20s into the 30s before the features, they're funny and, and clever, but they don't hit home with me because that humor seems to me a little contrived and, and a little softer. I prefer that kind of rough-hewn kind of quality that exists in Fleischer. Uh, and the, all of the stuff that you're talking about, too, Fleischer cartoons uh, of that particular era really really have this gorgeous attention to detail uh the the you know the stereo optic process where they they filmed in front of actual three-dimensional backgrounds and then superimposed the uh popeye figure of popeye or or olive and betty boop or whatever on on top of it created an effect i think is just so remarkable there's some technical playing around uh, invention in fleischer that i really enjoyed too there's a freedom there i think and like you said if you're going to do comic, comics or cartoons, why limit yourself? Why not use everything you can use? And I think Fleischer really tries to do that much more than Disney, at least early on. Disney gets into this realism thing, and you know they go down that pathway, and it's a fascinating pathway. But it does inhibit you from some of the broader humor and ideas that uh, you know Fleischer was was much, and Warner Brothers were much freer to explore. So in your own animations, then, uh, you know, you said you're really just starting. You talk like an animator, I have to say. You know, somebody who loves those little things, those those are the things you start to look at. You go, oh, God, you know, that's that's where the life is. Right. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, I just um, it it was just uh, playing around with it, doing something different, you know, just seeing if I could do this. And each one I do, I learn something from it. I by again self-teaching myself you know this program a very simple iMovie uh, animations and uh, anything more complicated well, it, would, it would i don't know if i have the time or inclination but well let me encourage you to try procreate if you haven't already procreate 5 it's got this i'm not using the the animation tool but there's an animation assist in it which a lot of people are starting to play around with and i think you'd really enjoy that i'm using procreate I'd been doing a lot of previously I'd been doing a lot of paper animation, just old school on, on animation paper with a pegboard, you know, and a light box. And I love doing that. But in terms of convenience, playing around with procreate on my iPad is, is fabulous. You, you, you can do brief animations on it and they can be complex and you can get them done relatively easily and quickly. And then I move them into Adobe After Effects, which, you know, to play around in there if you want to 
do other stuff and work out timing more, you know, effectively, that that's the way to go. It, it really is. Uh, I mean, the stuff you're doing now, I think you just, of course, right now it's, it's great the way it is, but if you want to play around with it more, uh, I encourage you to check that stuff out. I will. Definitely. Yeah. 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 You know, the one, one thing I wanted to talk to you about uh, is Catholicism in your work, because we're both, yeah. you know, I was raised Catholic too, the same hangups yeah, right, right, right. as, as, and the same issues. And of course I came out the other end, just as you did, you said you're an atheist and I am too. So, uh, it's kind of interesting, but Catholicism plays a big part in soup to nuts. Yes, it does. Um, because, um, I, I think a lot of the stuff that, um, you know, as, as we were growing up, you know, around the dining room table, um, there was a lot of humor about what happened, you know, in, in Catholic school and Catholic catechism classes. And um, so I wanted to incorporate that into my comic strip as well. In fact, I'm actually doing a young a young reader's novel right now that I'm working on. It's called Confessions of a Catholic Kid. It's more just, you know, designed for my experiences growing up as a Catholic, you know, in the 60s and uh, 70s. And mostly, it's essentially from the point of view of a seven-year-old boy just, you know, doesn't understand uh you know how this works but um it's it's a humorous look at you know growing up catholic and you know the the bungling of you know of dogma and uh you know misunderstanding certain things and questions and i mean we used to have you know priest would come over and visit the family and he had a, a an enormous enormous um uh mole on his nose <laughs> oh god <laughs> and his knee yeah father father Brueger and we used to call him father Booger and, oh, man. <laughs> and just, you know, writing about that kind of stuff and just how, you know, accidentally calling him that. Um, there's another chapter where my mother, my mother was always adamant that we went to church and we had to be represented at church. You know, it has to be at least one Stromoski every Sunday, you know, as a God, you know, older before it was everybody had to go but you know in the 70s my mother was like we've got to go we lived like a block or two away from the catholic church and she went out to um in a driving snowstorm you know just she was determined to go to mass and we were standing at the front door watching her you know try to cross across the yard and she uh, hit a hole that we had dug and forgot about and she <laughs> ended up you know face first in this snowbank and it was uh it's actually pretty funny we thought it was you know, a bear trap, you know, but we, at least we knew that the mayor, the bear trap worked. So uh, <laughs> th those kinds of things, just, you know, writing, you know, memories about you know, growing up Catholic. But I think that religion itself is a plethora of comic humor. Um, yeah. Because, because anything that takes itself that seriously, you know, can, has to be taken a peg down or two. And, and that just goes to my, you know, instincts. Like before I like things that, you know, attacking sacred cows, you know, just let's poke fun at, poke fun at the things that you're not supposed to poke fun at. That's what makes it funnier. Well, it's, and, it's taboo. Yeah. And, and I'm sure the rea you've gotten all kinds of reactions, uh, to, to your work that deals with religion and specifically Catholicism. Oh yeah. I, I, pro and con. Yeah. Uh, usually, uh, the older the person, the more offended they were. Uh, the closer they were to my age or younger, the, the, they got it. You know, they understood. And occasionally I'd hear from a Catholic priest, you know, and they they were actually pretty liberal about, you know, they never took offense. You know, they, they would ask me for the original. And I, was, I would just, <laughs> so, you know, so yeah, that, that, that happened quite often. But uh, 
So your your experience, you went to Catholic school as uh, well. Only for the first grade. Uh, all oh, my, okay. All my siblings went above me, uh, pretty much, you know, in descending order. Uh, but at one point, my mother took us all out and put us in public school, which was an interesting thing because um, just in that one year of Catholic school, I was way ahead of every. I went from first grade to second grade, and when I was in second grade, I was way ahead of pretty much every subject than everybody else because I think in Catholic school, you know, fear is a great motivator. So, <laughs> um, yeah. The only something I wasn't good at was science because they didn't really teach science in Catholic school, you know, because God made everything. Um, yeah. But uh, other than no, that, I was way ahead of everybody. You know, I was cursive writing. Well, you know, that's still an issue, you know, private schools in general. I mean, uh, in terms of um, particularly in terms of urban environments, you know, underfunded public schools and, and uh, private schools that have some advantages, but uh, Catholic schools among them. So a lot of kids who aren't even Catholic. Well, in my, my, my Catholic school, it was pretty crowded. I mean, we, well, my class size was 60. We had six rows of wow. 10 kids, and we learned. I mean, we we learned because we were scared to death. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, was different, it was different back then. Uh, nuns were disciplinarian. They were, there was corporal punishment. Um, there was just the fear of God, you know. And, yeah. I, I remember that, too, even though I didn't go to Catholic school, but we certainly got that, you know, uh, Sunday school. We, we got it in church. Uh, fear was a big thing, big motivator back then. It was a big tool in the in the, you know, in the toolbox. It's confusing. You know, when you're six years old, it's like, yeah. you know, you're, you're scared to death of this person, but you're supposed to love them. You know, it's just how does that work? And, you know, in the right in the front of the class, there's this, you know, two foot statue of a guy nailed to a cross bleeding from his chest and and his head yeah and, uh, you're looking at that every day and you know it was a it was a it was a confusing matter and then and then when you and there was you had to leave catholic school so you got religion in the catholic school but as a catholic if you're in a public school you had to go to catechism you had to have you know instruction during the week so yes. wednesday afternoons after school you have to go to catechism and so there are two kinds of catholics there's a hierarchy you know there's the the private school Catholics who are like these upper echelon Catholic kids. And then you had the public school Catholics, which were, you know, it was, it was like a caste system. You were, you were a sub Catholic because you, your parents didn't, you know, send you to the Catholic school. So you were treated like that as the nuns. And the nun that I went to for catechism, the year after I left uh, first grade, I had to go to catechism in second grade was my first grade teacher, sister Richardine. And she looked at me like I stabbed her in the heart. You know, like I was now a public school kid. I was, you know, at a lower echelon Catholic. It was just the way that she looked at me and treated me. Which is, it's just, it's just a weird dynamic. It's just, um, yeah. you know, and you keep these things in your memory banks and you write about them as a cartoonist later on. That's how you get back at them. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's yeah, the cartooning is the best revenge, right? It, it is. It yeah, it's interesting how Catholic school went through some changes and sort of fell out of favor even among Catholics after a period of time. There was a lot of discussion and emphasis, I remember, in the early 60s, but it was a big deal for me not to go to Catholic school because my dad and my mom both had. Uh, and it was, a, you know, my mother went through some problems with the Catholic Church that had to do with, you know, losing a child and and uh, afterwards and some, some issues that came up afterwards. So she ended up having a very 
Well, she left the church after being somebody who was very, very uh, religious, and it became sort of a point of contention between my folks. You know, um, we had to keep going to, to religious ed, or at least I did. My brothers and sisters following me didn't, but it was a big thing having a fallout with the church and then uh, my mother having problems with it and with the parish that we belong to. And and then my father would take us to, to church on Sunday. My mother stopped going after a period of time because she had some serious issues with the idea of birth control and uh, and the way they they treated women in the, the Catholic Church and that that was a it was a kind of an interesting but also a very um, I guess tumultuous period uh, the 60s and probably, 70s yeah it was probably the 70s because that's that's when my mother kind of like lost her her uh, belief system and didn't insist on us going anymore uh, it was the women's movement that really I think affected the Catholic Church yeah. and and membership in the church for a, for a good number of people. Um, sure. And my mother was a constant. Still- she wasn't born Catholic. She had to uh, become a Catholic in order to marry my father. And um, she was, and you know, con- converted Catholics are, are just the most devout. I mean, yeah, he was just completely, you know, my dad was like a, you know, he was like a country club Catholic, you know, he'd go at Easter and Sunday, you know, Easter and Christmas and yeah. pretty you know, most of the time, because he would fall asleep in church and start snoring. So <laughs> she just said, uh, you just you, you don't have to keep going. But we we had to go. And I hated it. I never enjoyed it. I never enjoyed church. I yeah. found it a, a complete and utter waste of time. Uh, I remember, especially on nice days, because as a kid mm-hmm. growing up, I always wanted to be outside. I just love being outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember sitting in church. And looking out the windows and looking out the doors, especially if it was a warm day, they would open the side doors and you could see we had this field out there and, you know, there would be kids out there playing and, you know, I could see the playground, you know, a quarter mile away and there's kids playing. I'm sitting here listening to this dribble and thinking, you know, this same thing that happened last week. I'm listening (laughs) to the same shit this last week. You know, it's like we do this every week. And, um, you know, and I felt guilty and about it. Does, yeah, it doesn't. I'm just sorry. It, it's just, you know, when you say stuff like this, it just resonates with me so much. I, I because of the same experience, and I, it just doesn't have any impact or connection to your childhood, you know, to you no, as a person. It was weird. And it was just weird things that were going on. And, and the, just the dreary music, you know, you know, just the, and then the going to receive communion and the fact that you can't chew it, you had to have it dissolve. Oh, I hated that. Um, and it would be Almost. stuck stuck to the roof of your mouth until like late that afternoon um, it just made me gag yeah every and it, sunday it, do you remember um the, there was a rule they used to have to uh you had to fast before the host you'd have to have an empty stomach yes. so you could not have breakfast you could not have you could have water or medicine that's it before uh-huh. you receive the communion it's like what yeah, <laughs> like, it was what? awful so you just always had to go to seven o'clock mass. So because you, you're starving, <laughs> you're just starving. You know, you just yeah, you just you couldn't chew it, you couldn't touch it. I remember one time, um, and my brothers were altar boys, and um, my brother, you know, they they would hold the plate underneath your chin. Now they hand it to you, and you're allowed to touch it. But back then, you weren't allowed to touch the Eucharist at all. Yeah, that's uh, right. It, it was sacred, you know. So uh, my brother, uh, and then I always wonder what the plate was for. Uh, because if it dro- if you if the priest missed or something or you dropped it, it would <laughs> and it actually somebody it dropped it hit the plate ricocheted and hit the floor and everything stopped. 
<laughs> like everybody was staring at this host, and my brother's standing there holding this, you know, plate on a stick, and the and Father Duffy's like damning him to hell with his eyes. You know? <laughs> Jesus is on the ground. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, stuff like that. And oh, so you know, this, so you can see the the you know the opportunity to write about this stuff and and the humorous you know part of it, and you know just um, and there was always three kinds of priests. You know, there was. You know, there was the father take a nip, you know, who was always, always a little <laughs> more consequent, you know, constant or the, the wine instead of water. Yeah. Uh, there was the father fire and brimstone. who would just be screaming at you, you know, that you're all going yeah. to hell because you don't give it. You had that one. Yeah. And then you had father, what a waste, who was the, uh, he was the young hip priest that, you know, went, did all the folk masses and all the girls were in love with because he was 26 oh or something. Oh my God. He was always on the basketball court with his collar on. Yeah. You know, that guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so well, perfect because that was our parish, too. That was our parish. And that was, uh, you know, there's a drunk guy, there was the angry guy, and there was, a, you know, the cool, hip, hippie, you know, hippie dippy, you know, priest. Oh, and all girls loved him. And there was nuns like that, too. There was, you know, the, the nuns that were usually old and wrinkled and just dried up. And then there was the happy, big, fat nun. And then there was... Who was always out playing basketball in her full, you know, nun outfit. You know, just she's out there playing basketball and the and her got to admire her. Her veil is flying around and you know she was. It's it was you know everybody had that. So yeah, it was an interesting culture to rebel against uh, yeah. in, in a lot of ways. And a lot, you know, you got to have some of that stuff to bounce off of, you know, as yeah. a cartoonist. And I think that you know one of the things I appreciated in Soup to Nuts is that I don't see that experience in a lot of popular culture yeah. these days. You know, reflected in popular culture. But there's, you know, those of us who went through that as kids, uh, you know, it's it's. Yeah, we don't talk about it a lot, but Soup to Nuts does allow for that to be explored, and I really appreciated that. Even though I survived, you know, Catholicism to become an atheist, it it uh, it, it was great to it's great to read it in the comic and and find a reflection there, you know, of my own experience. Oh, whenever I did a Sunday page, usually when I um, talked about religion, it was usually a Sunday page. So whenever I did one of those, it was just my email box would be full. <laughs> uh, either with people mad or people saying oh my god i remember that i felt the same way or you know that's yeah. sort of, i'm actually i did a comic strip once i couldn't believe my editor let me do it um where uh <clears throat> andrew walks into the bedroom and he's looking over his shoulder and Roy at his desk with his you know you know sun lamp and he's working diligently and he's saying what are you doing and he said i knocked the crucifix off the wall and i gotta fix it before mom finds out so he's got this little Brad nail hammer and he's, he's hammering the nails back into Jesus's hands. Uh, oh my God. Tick, 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 tick. And then, and Roy boy looks up and he says, you know, I feel like a Roman. <laughs> oh my God, actually, I actually saw my editor didn't edit it. And surprisingly, I didn't get one email from it. it that, was, that's amazing. I thought I was going to be inundated, but not one. It was just a very that's fantastic. Yeah. It was also a great comic. That that, that well, it happened. It was you know we, that yeah. that actually happened. We, we were always breaking crucifixes or breaking you know rosaries and having to fix them and you know and for years I thought I had a spatula around my neck, but it was a scapula. I thought it was a spatula. <laughs> I had to work that into jokes. That's great. So uh, uh, 
putting that aside just for a moment, the one other thing I wanted to, to ask you about, obviously, was your experience as president of the National Cartoonist Society. Oh. Uh, you did that for a couple of years. Yeah, I was on the board of directors for a long time, um, probably 10 years. Uh, I was initially um, a second vice president, which means you don't do anything. <laughs> you just kind of like observe <laughs> and see what's going on. And uh, and then I was membership chairman for a while. I was the awards chairman for a while. I was the president. Uh, I run the um, cartooning for kids program that they did. Uh, I'm, I'm on the uh, foundation board right now. Um, but yeah, it was it was a good experience. One of the things I, I loved about it, it was um, when I was president, was getting to pick where we went for the Rubens, and oh, of course, uh, did a lot of uh, you know sightseeing trips. We go to a city, and um, I used to. One of the things we used to do, I don't know if we do it now, but uh, it was post 9/11, so hotels were very um, willing to negotiate because a lot mm -hmm. of people travel back then they just were too frightened so we used to yeah. get really good deals on hotels so i would go to chicago and i go to three hotels and i would you know really nice you know five diamond hotels and they would put me up and wine you and dine you and try to get you to come to their uh hotel and uh nice same, same thing in florida uh did uh, saw several hotels in florida and they would you know they pay all your expenses and it was fun it was a lot of it was a lot of work but it was a lot of fun but um mm -hmm. You know, president, it, it, it's like it's like editors. You know, you can't please everybody in an organization. Someone will always find fault with something you do, and and you just got to do your best, and uh, hopefully, you know, things work work out. And uh, it was just, it's just, it's an interesting thing. You know, awards they're really nice for the moment. They're a great moment, and I and I think more people should win them because it's really exciting. Because when you're nominated, you're really the president calls you or writes you a letter and says, you know, you've been nominated for an award and your heart's pumping is, Oh my God, that's great. And then you go to the Rubens and, and you can't think about anything until the awards night. So you're there, you know, on a Friday and you're thinking back your head, you're thinking, Oh, this award's coming up. I hope I win. Or, and then you're, it's the day of the award and then you do all your seminars in the back of your head. You're still thinking, Oh my God, the, that thing's coming up really soon. And, and you're getting dressed, you're putting your tuxedo on, you go down, you have the cocktails and you're you're trying to be cool, but your heart's, you know, beating. And then you sit down to dinner and then they, then the awards start <clears throat> and then your heart's really beating. Look at the program and you see which division, you know, what what when your division comes up. So if it's first, second, third or fifth and the your heart's just pounding by the time. You know, they get to your division and then your name is announced and they show your artwork up on the screen and the person opens up the envelope and they, 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 they say your name. And that's just an amazing feeling. It's a great feeling. And people are clapping for you and you walk up and the spotlights on you and you get to say some words and you thank your wife. And it's a really nice moment. <clears throat> and then it's over. You know, and then you, then you sit down and they go to the next one and and then it's over. It doesn't do anything really for your career. It doesn't change anything, but it's a nice moment. And it's a very subjective moment. I mean, yeah. you understand that you probably, you know, this was given to you because five people, you know, thought you were great, you know, that voted for you and um, or 10 people voted for you. But it's still a great feeling. You know, it, it's sure. not to win those awards, but only the first time because I won three and wow. the, the first one was great. I mean, they were all great. It was an honor. I mean, don't get me wrong, but it was not as exciting as that first one. It's still exciting, but that first one was just fantastic. And it was sure. the first Ruben I ever attended. It was 1996, and I 
and I won for uh, greeting cards. I was just really, really, um, it was just, it was just very, very cool. And then you win again, it, it's still cool, but it's not like that first time. So I think, I think when the NCS uh, votes, they should really do think about, because there's so many talented people out there that should win an award that haven't, and they should have that moment. That's really what it should be about. I mean, it, it's great and everything, but let's spread the love around a little bit because those people are doing as well, you know? Oh yeah. I, I, I think that's one of the downsides of, of awards. I think you're right. You know, there's so much wonderful, it's so wonderful to be acknowledged, but at the yeah. same time, there are so many people who are doing such great work. It's too many people to count. And yeah. some of the work just doesn't fit the bill or, or whatever for whatever thing it may stand outside of it somehow. Uh, and it's equally, valuable as anything else and just somehow it gets overlooked like you know something like bill holman's work as you were talking about you know uh somebody who's doing a comic strip that is maybe a little more eccentric and a little outside the mainstream maybe it's not you know selling as much but it it certainly has value that's equal you know to to other things and particularly a lot of value because it's coming from a different point of view and that's really important to celebrate too you know? yeah, it's not. It's a, it's an art award. It's not a sales award, and uh, yeah. it's recognized as that. And that's that's essentially what that should be the only criteria. It's uh, other cartoonists who are voting, right? Just members of the yeah NCS members uh, vote for the the all the divisions and the Rubin Award. And okay, one of the things that I'm not saying any of these people are not deserving, but um, we tend to be insular in who we select for, especially the cartoonist of the year. They tend to be syndicated people because they're the most visual. You know, they're the most visual within our industry. But if people sat down and thought about it, you know, and go outside the most obvious ones, you know, that, yeah. that are people that have been overlooked. Um, Charles Adams never won any NCAA. Yeah. You know, Charles Adams, you know, himself. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, that's an indication of what you're talking about. Absolutely. I mean, hard to think of, but then at the, and and that goes to show the limitations of of awards and their, their reach. But Charles Adams, uh, fortunately, didn't need it. One of the things too, is that we tend to not really pay attention to what it means to be the cartoonist of the year. And to me, Mm -hmm. it should be the person who really had the most impact, you know, that year who did something that was really memorable and a lot of they get it right. Um, but uh, one of the thing, one of my complaints is like when Mark Tatuli came out with Leo, um, his syndicated feature, it was so different and so amazing the year that that came out. That, that was so, to me, Mark should have won that year, and he didn't. Uh-huh. And he's been nominated ever since, and it's been like ten times or something like that now. But um, Mark should have won, you know, almost immediately because it was it was the talk of of the industry. It was yeah. really an impactful comic strip um ross chast when she came out with uh, her her graphic novel can we talk about something yeah. pleasant uh she did win cartoons of the year uh that was a year we, we that was absolutely well deserved it was a great graphic novel um it you know it you know it, it was made a huge impact and but you know there's other you know cartoonists uh allison bechtel allison yeah. bechtel should have won you know yeah not even been nominated. I mean, yeah, ridiculous, really. Yeah. People don't look past, you know, if they thought about it, you know, people said, hey, what about Alison Bechtel when she did Fun Home? 
Oh, absolutely. It should have been. Well, and then, you know, Dykes to watch out for was in alternative newspapers for for how long? 20 years or something, you know, uh, desperate. You really, sh- you know, alternative newspapers, alternative comics. Those are other things, you know, that. that well, Linda has be... been getting nominated for about three, three years now. I think she's been nominated, you know, long overdue. Uh, yeah, but absolutely. That, you know, she's mostly teaching now and she's not really publishing. And, um. So she will probably get a Ruben. She did get the uh, Milt Kniff Award, which is a Lifetime Achievement Award. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was probably one of my, she's also one of my greatest influences. Uh, her writing, really? just astonishing to me. Uh, just no cartoonist writes like she does. She's, yeah. One minute she could have you in hysterics. And then yeah. the, the next comic strip, you're crying. I mean, she's actually, some of her writing has actually got me so very emotional uh, because she touches on things that uh, usually are hidden away, you know, or, buried yeah. she she can pick scabs she's good at that um but she's she's another cartoonist but you know but they th- that's what these are they're just awards you know they're just recognition for uh for a moment and and you live that moment very briefly and uh it's great i'm really happy for so many of my friends that have won and, and won awards and and i'm i'm happy the fact you know that i've, I've had a few already and that's that's enough but we need to spread it out, you know, yeah. out some more because there's some guys and women and men that have uh, just never even been nominated, much less win. Yeah. And yeah. they should have a moment. You know, they should, you should have that moment where everyone's clapping for you and the spotlight's on you and everybody says they love you. That's a, yeah. that's a feeling. Well, uh, this has been absolutely terrific, Rick. Uh, really enjoyed speaking with you. It's been, uh, this, this has to be, I think a record in terms of, uh, my interview so far. I mean, I, I feel like we could keep on talking, but, uh, I have to, to relieve myself. So <laughs> I've been drinking hot tea while I'm sitting here and I'm locked in a closet. <laughs> well, there you go. So, well, on that note, but that note. it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it too. And, uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, looking at your stuff on Instagram, I'll, I'll definitely uh, check out your stuff and become a, a daily watcher of what you're doing. So, and, I, and I appreciate you uh, giving me the interview today. Oh, Rick, it's been a pleasure. I really, I really have enjoyed it. It's, there's so much to talk about, and I hope we get to do it again sometime uh, because I do feel like, you know, I mean, there are a lot of these these topics can be explored even further, and uh, and you know, it's been such a wide ranging conversation. And I've really, really enjoyed it, and I hope it brings more people to your Patreon page and uh, support Andrew and uh, keep up with what you're doing because you're doing a lot of inventive new things and exciting things, and your Instagram feed is is one of the joys I have every day. So, oh, I really that's good for you to say. Keep in touch, and uh, uh, thanks so much for today. Okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, that that is was some conversation. It was great. Wasn't that great? I, I really had a, a great time talking to Rick. And I really hope to bring him out to uh, the university to talk to my students at some point in the future. Be sure to go to Patreon. Be sure to give him some support. I think it's really important to, especially when artists and cartoonists are moving out on their own, uh, I think it's really important to, to try to support them as best we can. So check out Patreon, and, and if you got an extra dollar to spend and you love Soup to Nuts, be sure to uh, offer your support on Patreon for Rick Stramoski, okay? Uh, you know, I was wondering about one of the things that sometimes after... Uh, how do I put this? Uh, 
okay, I'm a Taurus, and and I don't necessarily believe in astrology and zodiac, the signs of the zodiac and all this stuff. But there, there are some some uh, uh, characteristics of the of the classic Taurus that play out in my temperament, and among those is a kind of um, slowness. <laughs> I don't want to say intellectual slowness, but I'm not one of those people who immediately thinks of the response uh, when somebody else is making a point. Or I don't always think of, you know, I, I think of a lot of things after the fact, you know, after a discussion, particularly an interesting discussion. And, and the discussion we were having about, you know, Rick's tastes versus the tastes of somebody who'd be interested in, in peanuts, for example, my tastes or whatnot. Although I have to say I share a lot of the, the same tastes in regard to Mad Magazine, in regard to uh, uh, Smokey Stover and Bill Holman and madcap stuff, silly humor and slapstick humor. I'm a big fan of all of that stuff. Groucho Marx is one of my idols too in, in humor. Uh, so I get into all that. So I understand, but it is a, this is what I was thinking of. That kind of humor is outward, you know? Satire is a kind of outward uh, directed humor. It's directed at the world outside the individual. And one of the things that is true about Schultz's work, Charles Schultz's work, is that it's inward. It's inward-directed, and inward-directed humor is of a different temperament and explores different issues. Some of those issues may be uncomfortable, but some of those issues may be things that we may not want to grapple with uh, during the day, and some may be impatient with those kinds of uh, issues. And and I think, uh, but I do think there's a distinction there between the types of humor, and and uh, so some folks have a uh, you know a preference, a taste for outward-directed humor and satire, and others have uh, an interest in inward. I don't mean to suggest that they're mutually exclusive. They're not. Uh, there's, there can be lots of overlap in varying degrees of satire versus uh, psychological humor, but humorists can find that they lean one, one way or the other. I think it's always a good thing to to you know find where your true your real sensibility lies and to kind of go with it. And hey, you know it all comes down to what you find funny. You know what the writer finds funny, and that's what they're going to put into their work, right? And I'm not really sure that when Charles Schultz sat down to create Peanuts and uh, develop it over those years, that he knew he was looking inward as much as he was, or that he set out to look inward as much as he he did. But he certainly does in the end. You know, even when it comes to the imaginings of, of Snoopy, we are talking about a kind of psychology and the psychology of a particular character, you know, particular being. It's very different than the kind of social satire that one sees in pages of Mad Magazine or, or in Harvey Kurtzman's Little Annie Fanny or... Uh, Al Cap's Little Abner, to name a couple of satirical strips from the past. And, you know, and as somebody who is a practitioner of, of comics, uh, I often think about that. I think about the distinction. And I know in my, it's funny, because in my own work, I tend to, to usually, like if you ever read Plastic Baby Heads from Outer Space, you probably find that it's, it's a social satire and uh, outward directed. Although... I think I appreciate more those that the comic, uh, the comic stylings, the the uh, the cartoons of someone like uh, the writing of someone like Charles Schultz, which is uh, directed towards the inner self, um, and it's something I, I like to think about in my own work and try to improve upon and and work towards uh, because I think it's difficult, but I also think it lasts. It's interesting. It uh, it has impact. And not to say that Outward Directed doesn't either. Uh, like Groucho Marx and Duck Soup, still classic film that, oh, 
you know, has a lot of meaning, at least for me, and uh, um, today. So anyway, it just, you know, one of those things to, to ruminate on. Uh, I'm just throwing it out there. Just some thoughts I had after the fact and uh, wanted to share them with you. That'll be it for today, I believe. And next time, I think our guest will be Tim Jones, the cartoonist, self-syndicated cartoonist behind the comic strip Sour Grapes, which if you are, you're, you're from Rhode Island, you're probably very familiar with. Uh, and it's out in Texas and California, too. So it's one of those comic strips that's out and about, but it's in print. And so we'll talk to Tim about his career and his life in uh, uh, self-syndication and what it takes to do that. Uh, so for now, I'll say so long. I'll see you next time. Hope you are happy and healthy and well. And thanks for listening. Okay, so just as an example of how bad my business acumen is, I totally forgot to, to uh, uh, promote myself. <laughs> Be sure to follow me on uh, Instagram. Uh, that's Grogan Jeff on Instagram and uh, and uh, whatever. And you, you know, if you want to know more about me, I'm I'm on. Uh, you can go to my website, jeffgrogan.com. Although the, don't look for anything in the about section because I really can't stand writing those things. It, this is who I am, and I, I've tried, and I and it just sounds so full of baloney. Anyway, uh, Grogan Jeff, Instagram, lots of pictures, little stuff, uh, folder all, whatever. Check it out. And uh, okay, yeah, there. That's my self promotion for this week. Ciao. See you. Bye. Okay, further proof of my uh, incompetence in regard to business and uh, self-promotion. I, I, I'm playing. <laughs> I'm, I'm playing the edited version of the show for my wife, and we get to the end of the uh, the outro and and even the part where I interject something about myself, and I think I'm doing a great job. She says, "You haven't even talked about you know your, the new strip you're putting up on on Instagram. You haven't even mentioned it, and it's been going on for a couple of weeks now. And that's true. I forgot all about it." Uh, yeah, okay. Don't, don't do as I do. Do as I say, <laughs> kids, okay? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, oh boy, this is bad. Um, okay, so I've, I'm, I'm running samples of a new comic strip. It's called Gladly Yours. It's a, it's a riff, uh, off of, uh, the comic strip I ran on Go Comics for a while called Jetpack Jr. It's about, uh, the husband and wife, uh, Hank and Marsha Gladly, and I'm running samples of it right now. Uh, I've only done like six weeks of it, but, uh, you know, check it out. Um, it's, it's important for me, I guess, if you check it out on Instagram, uh, see, you know, go back and look at some of the posts because there's only a couple more weeks of it left. But anyway, uh, check it out and see if you like it. I, I, I you know, and if you like it, give me a heads up because I, I really kind of know, got to got to kind of know. I, but you know what, uh, it, you know, get, get, uh, let me know. Um, <laughs> Grogan Jeff, G-R-O-G-A-N-G-E-O-F-F. Okay, there's my self-promotion. I did it. I talked about my comic strip, uh, Gladly Yours. Check it out. I, I am doing work. It's out there, and I need your support just like everybody else does. So, uh, uh, you know, see what you can do anyway. Uh, and, and remember, Jeff is spelled with a, J, a G, not a J, G, G-E-O-F-F. Uh, Grogan Jeff, okay? Uh, I got in trouble once when I was a kid.
did I, did I do a good job? Have I done it now? All right? Am I done? Okay. Yeah. Bye.